is dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Earlier this month, Dracina Wines participated in the International Cabernet Franc competition sponsored by California Wines and Wineries in Copperopolis, California. We were excited to find out that we won Best of Class and Best of Show. In addition to the competition, there was a walk-around tasting and a Cabernet Franc dinner in which three Cab Franc wines were poured. Dracina Wines was one of them and was paired with smoked pork belly. I was also honored to be asked to be one of the three keynote speakers. My speech was titled Cabernet Franc, coming out of the shadow of its progeny. In this podcast, I interview Michael Kelly to get his thoughts on how the event went and predictions of where it will go in the future. Plus, you can listen to the three keynote speeches. Unfortunately, I forgot to record my own, so I did that after the fact, but the other two speeches were recorded on site. Enjoy the conversation. While you are listening, please take a moment to rate and review Exploring the Wine Glass. Ratings are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible. Taking one minute of your time is the only way that algorithms will suggest Exploring the Wine Glass to others. Slancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET Level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. So special, even in the Bible. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. I am so excited today because we have just come back from the... Cab Franc International Cab Franc Competition, which was sponsored by California Wines and Wineries in Copperopolis, which I still think is just named for a Superman town, but Copperopolis, California. And with me today, we have Michael Kelly, who I don't know how he did it, but I have to stand up and give him kudos because he pulled off one heck of an event. So welcome, Michael. How are you doing today? Well, thanks, Lori. Thanks for having me on on uh, your podcast. I know that uh, you should be ecstatic. You, you like cleaned house on most of the awards. Uh, you were like uh, floating and flittering above the ground as your name was announced, you and your <laughs> husband. And uh, Graciana was like the hit of the parade, as they say. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, uh, we were very, very surprised um, to hear the results. And it was it was very exciting to be there at the dinner to hear to hear when Dracina Wines gets to call best of show. We never get tired of hearing that. So thank you. But before we get into that and a couple of the other wineries, I just want to say, first of all, congratulations, because you pulled off one heck of an event. And you pretty much you did that pretty much all by yourself and other events like this have teams of people. So just what was it like to get this event rolling? <laughs> well, it uh, so the the initial idea and thoughts of it started back and I started working this 
back in August. And doing it as a one-man show does take a lot on the front end, but the actual event, doing the event takes, and the and this was actually three events, three events simultaneously going on over two days. And so for those that did take a team, and that team included uh, some volunteers and the judges and the uh, restaurant and personnel staff of the club, um, there was there was more more to it, but at the day of the event, but up, leading up to it, um, yes, if I had hair, I would have been pulling it out, as they say. <laughs> so let's talk about the let's talk about those three events. So it actually started off with the competition. So you had sixty-seven wineries. Yes. So. So the first the first event over the two days was the wine competition, and we had something like 73, 74 wineries oh. signed up and registered for the event. Um, and two two wineries um, just had sold out of their wines. So they were like said, oh, we can't we can't participate. And then we had um, one wine, one winery out of South Africa who had a problem getting his wine shipped to the United States and California. And we had three guys that signed up uh, after the deadline. And even though they were some very prestigious names and uh, wineries, I just said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And that was the, uh, that may, I may have shot myself in the foot for the next year, but it was. Well, we you know what? The- deadlines are deadlines. And, you know, as, as I always said, when I was still teaching, when you, you know, the school will create a deadline and then, oh, we've extended the deadline. All that does is teach people that deadlines don't matter. So (laughs) maybe, maybe they'll learn to submit earlier next time. Right. So I think that there's something to that. And um, we were, uh, but it was very, so we ended up with 66 wines in total for the event to be judged. And we have two sets of judges. We have both professional judges and we have what I call people's choice judges. And that started out three years ago as kind of what I call a noble experiment, trying to see the palates of professional judges and can do a comparison against what I call some very enthusiastic wine folks that have their own little cell, very small sellers, but they still are, um, taste a lot of different wines and they also like Cab Franc. So it was going to be a comparison. In the first year, we had four categories and two of the four chose exactly the same wine as best of class. So I thought that was interesting, but it's since diver- had a, has had a divergence and they have now, now gone on and created and chosen different ones completely after that fact. Well, I do think that part of it, that first year there were less wines Yes. Right. So that may have something, you know, the statistics behind the less wines, less plausible, you know, opportunities to diverge. But um, it is it's an interesting thing. And um, that you have that, that it's a people's choice and a professional. But that just really doubles your work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And doubles the medals and, you know, mailings and everything else. But what was nice, though, is that I think that if if the general public, whoever reads and looks at the results, and if they like, they can fall into a classification. If they like, takes 
taste one of the wines from the professional judges. And if you like it, then go with, go with their, their ratings. And if you like the ones from the people's choice, and if you like that, they'll be kind of consistent amongst the two different columns of winners. So it kind of gives you, you know, the everyday Joe Blow, blue collar worker on the one hand, and it gives you the professional white collar on the other hand. And your palette may align depend and not depending on your particular color that you're wearing, it will just simply align with somebody's palette. And then you can go from, from there. And that honestly is an excellent tip for anybody who's trying to get into wine. You know, there's some people out there that get paid big bucks to taste wine and not that they're not that what they're saying isn't right, but their palate might not be aligned with your palate. So as you're trying to get into wine and trying to learn more about what you like, the number one rule is you have to find somebody who has a similar palate to you. So, so you know what to follow. So we had 66 wines entered and you ran the competition and it, how long was the competition itself? Uh, the, well, let's see, the judges met at 8.30 in the morning. Uh, they got their uh, final instructions um, and they, we started in at nine o'clock sharp, maybe five to nine. And we went straight through, through uh, 2.15 in the afternoon. All right, it's a lot of tasting. <laughs> a lot of tasting and a lot of uh, what I call mental arm wrestling with each other, trying because we use the Danish method so you try to develop a consensus with everybody on the, on the, uh, the table agreeing to what that wine should uh, be in, uh, rated based on the characteristics of what a typical Cab Franc comes to. So all of the judges get pre-homework assignments or reading material to read before they come to the event so that they have an idea. Judging is a mental exercise, not a tasting mm -hmm. exercise. You've got to think about what is the true characteristics of that varietal. And then whether you like it or not is not part of the equation. The question is, does it meet the key uh, criteria? And that's everything from the visual looks of it to the aromas, uh, to the taste and the finish. Right. And it's like a dog I, show. <laughs> it's yeah, a dog show yeah. for wine, right? There is a standard, there is a breed standard, and that judge is a specialist in that breed standard, and they are judging each dog against a standard, not each dog against the next dog. Yeah, doesn't matter mm -hmm. which dog came up and licked you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, 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 right. So after all of the judging, you held those the awards very close to the chest. Nobody knew what was going on. And that evening, you held the second part of this triathlon of wine, of Cab Franc, and that was a walk around tasting. And that was awesome. We got to participate in that. And uh, so tell us why why you did that, your thoughts behind that. And okay. how you thought so, it went. Yeah, so the idea was to, um, ask eight previous winners from the previous two years to participate. Now we had winners from Michigan and um, Virginia and other areas, Washington, Oregon, Texas, New Mexico, but a little hard for them to bring their wines and come to the event. So I also had to be somewhat practical about it. So I invited eight people who had won 
either gold, double gold, best of class, best of show, to participate in a walk around um, tasting. And the idea was to get different areas. So at this tasting, which were there were eight wineries participating, we were able to get wines from Paso Robles. We were able to get wines from Arroyo Seco, Livermore Valley, and also Napa Valley. So that, with, and especially with the price of gas today being $6 or close to it, <laughs> You could just simply go to one location and taste four different AVAs and and actually some sub AVAs within those areas, and get a really good opportunity to taste a Cab Franc and seeing how diverse it can taste from the different terroirs in those different locales. And that was really fun. And we all uh, you wanted us there early. So we all were there super early, but that actually worked out well because it gave us time to walk around and taste each other's wines also. And we had some nice conversations about how the grapes were growing and how we harvested and things like that. So it, it was nice to be there before everybody else came in. And the spread was out of control. Yeah, we So we were at one point when I was working with the staff at the, at the golf course, we were actually trying to make this large charcuterie board. And we ended up with essentially a charcuterie board that was 12 feet long. And um, there was just some incredible foods that were on there. And they kept replacing and replenishing that on an ongoing basis. And but anyway, so that was so that was that was event number two. And there were a lot of people there and they, they, it was what I liked about it from the producer side of it was that it wasn't um, out of control with the amount of people that were there. Um, I don't know what the final number was, but it allowed us a lot of times when you do events like that, you're pouring and you can't really represent yourself. You can't answer questions. You can't, you know, because you get one person who's talking to you and then everybody else is standing behind them, like tapping their foot, like, I want my wine, I want my wine. Um, And in this situation, there was a large amount of people there, but the people, it was small enough that we were able to talk to the person and tell them each the story or when they had questions about the wine, or the winemaking process, we were able to do that. So from the from Dracina Wines' aspect, it was able to get, give a little bit more of us to each person versus just pouring a wine and letting them walk away and not even know what they're tasting. Right, and I think there was two, two things that added to that, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it as the, as the winery there. And then a little recovery the next day, and then you had well, a dinner. Yes. So at the dinner, we had three featured winemakers that I had personally chosen, not based on uh, their, because we didn't know who was going to win this year. So we just, I just picked out three that I thought would go well with certain foods. And we had, you know, crazy, phenomenally cooked foods. And we, I had chosen... Uh, this winery in Paso, uh, Dracenia Wines, because um, I like their wines. I <laughs> chose uh, La Tour Coat, which is a new wine label by Stephen Kent Marisu. Um, 
and he got like 96 points right out of the shoot on that wine. And I picked up, and I also asked Pam Starr and Pam Starr of Crocker and Starr, which has been kind of, she launched her career over 20 some odd years ago with Cab Franc and is one of the noted Cab Franc specialists. I'll call it that for lack of a better word. So again, having Paso, Livermore and Napa and inviting them to participate in the meal. And those three winemakers then were also asked to give an eight to 10 minute spiel. That would be a keynote speech uh, or spiel. And on some aspect of their life and their involvement and why they fell in love with Cab Franc and why Cab Franc is more than just a blending grape and why it should stand on its own two feet. And um, each of them gave just these very interesting, diverse and uh, just intriguing stories about their relationship with Cab Franc, be it in the vineyard, be it in the history, be it in their in the glass. Uh, it was just a nice story by each of the three winemakers, including yourself, Lori, Stephen Kent Marisu, and Pam Starr. And um, I think that was that was again, different, but I kind of wanted folks in the audience, which we had something like 80 some odd people for dinner. It was an opportunity for a sit down dinner. It was an opportunity for them to get an education because I, that's my bent is more wine education. And so I wanted them to get some, not just do the wine taste good and how much can I drink of this good wine, but let's talk about wine education and talk about some of the differences and things. And each of the wine, the three speeches helped put some boundaries on what Cab Franc is all about. And that's what the rest of this podcast will be when we are done talking will be, I recorded those speeches so people can hear exactly what they were because they were very different speeches. Um, you can, personalities come through in speeches and everybody's viewpoints, although it's Cab Franc centric and how great Cab Franc is. Everybody's viewpoint was a little different, so it was it was fun to hear the different the different aspects of it. There is a popular quote from an anonymous individual that declares, "Children are great imitators, so give them something great to imitate." It is every parent's dream that their child does better in the world than they themselves, and Cabernet Sauvignon. It's done pretty well. It is known as the king of red grapes and is the most widely planted red grape variety in the world. When people mention Cabernet, unfortunately, it's not Franc that comes to most people's minds. But times are changing and it is time for Cabernet Franc to step out of the shadow of its progeny and show how it is more than a blending grape. In 2015, when we released our 2013 inaugural vintage, I realized that there was a wine holiday for everything. Sauvignon Blanc has a day. Cabernet Sauvignon has a day. Even Carmenere has a day. And Merlot, it's got a month. Without Cabernet Franc, there would be no Cab Sauv, Merlot, or Carmenere. So I felt it was imperative that Cabernet Franc be recognized for an official holiday. There are many times that while I am at a tasting event, people look at our bottles and say, Oh, I love Cab! And when I come back with... This is Cab Franc, not Cab Sauv. Are you familiar with it? More often than not, the answer is no. And that is what Cab Franc Day is all about. Educating people about Cabernet Franc.
two basic comments that I say to help introduce customers to Cabernet Franc is how Cab Sauv came about and how Cab Franc is similar to Cab Sauv. I explain that on one hot, wild, crazy evening, as the fog came rolling in, there was definite seduction in the vineyard. Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc found each other, and the result was Cabernet Sauvignon, a natural crossing. I explained that this isn't true for many grape varieties. In fact, many have been created in the lab for very result-driven reasons. Such an example is Petit Syrah, or Dorif, which came about when botanist Francois Dorif crossed Syrah and Polarsin sometime around 1880. He was attempting to create a variety that was more tolerant to mildew. So it was named Dorif until it reached California, where, you know, Californians like to do their own thing, and they named the cha- they changed the name to Petite Syrah. It was very successful until the big boy Cabernet Sauvignon fell into the spotlight, forcing the plantings of Petite Syrah to be ripped out and replanted to Cabernet Sauvignon. This, we have seen, is the trend for Cabernet Sauvignon, including doing the same exact thing to its parent, Cabernet Franc. In order to explain what they can expect on the palate from Cabernet Sauvignon, I continue with Cabernet Franc kind of got around in the vineyards. You know, he wasn't a one-variety kind of guy. He was quite the gigolo. Cabernet Franc is also one of the parents of Merlot and Carmenere, as well as two now-extinct grape varieties, Maronia and Handarabi Belza. And just like with human children, the parent gives a bit of themselves to the offspring. So when tasting a Cab Franc, you can expect the body of a Cab Sauve, but the finish of a Merlot, and just a hint of spice that Carmenere is known for. So where did Cabernet Franc get its start? Well, Cabernet Franc, as a single varietal, began in southwest France, sometime in the 17th century, with Cardinal Richelieu's love for the grape. He was so enamored that he transported vine cuttings from the Liborne region in southwest France to the Loire Valley. Here, it has been growing and thriving ever since and plays a leading role rather than a blending in the shadows as it does in Bordeaux. The day, December 4th, was chosen as Cab Franc Day to remember Cardinal Richelieu's legacy. It is the anniversary of his death. Loosely translated, Cabernet Franc is Latin for Black Vine of France. After Richelieu introduced Cabernet Franc to the region, an abbot named Breton, which is actually another synonym for Cabernet Franc, with planted cuttings of these vines at the Abbey of Bourgay. It is here that Cabernet Franc found its place, having its first notable appearance in the 1600s. Today, plantings of Cabernet Franc are found throughout Europe, in addition to the right bank of Bordeaux. It is planted in the Anjou, Saumur, and Touraine in the Loire Valley, Northeast Italy, and Hungary. Plantings of Cabernet Franc can be found in Argentina, Canada, and China. In the United States, there are plantings in California, Washington, New York, Colorado, and Virginia, among other places. Returning to the statement that Cab Sauv is being a bully in the vineyards, over the past 10 years in California, Cabernet Franc has decreased its tonnage harvested by about 5,000 while Cabernet Sauvignon has increased by over 200,000 tons. 
And it's not just Cabernet Franc tonnage decreasing. In 2013, a Cabernet Sauvignon accounted for 11.2% of the total crush, while in 2021, it accounted for 15.3%. So what effect does this have on us Cab Franc lovers and producers? Well, the prices have skyrocketed. The price of Cabernet Sauvignon per ton has increased 24% since 2011, whereas the price per ton for Cabernet Franc has skyrocketed 105% over that same time period. As Cabernet Franc's popularity increases, there are more and more producers making varietal Cabernet Franc every vintage. We need to let more people understand how it differs from its progeny. And a good way to do this is through, believe it or not, Cats in the Cradle by Harry Shapin. So now bear with me because as an educator, it's all about connecting the audience to the story. And I guarantee you're going to remember this after hearing this because in all honesty, Cats in the Cradle could have been written about the relationship between father and progeny, Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. So cross-pollination, it's the usual way for a great variety, for this father and son relationship. Cabernet Sauvignon is the son of Cabernet Franc. And according to Jancis Robinson in the Oxford Companion of Wine, it is the world's most renowned grape variety for the production of fine red wine. And it is here solely by chance wind that occurred during the 17th century in southwestern France. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Well, Cabernet Franc was busy in Bordeaux being a team player and becoming one of the most renowned blending grapes. His son, Cabernet Sauvignon, was making a name for himself. Its popularity gained due to its ease of cultivation, thick skin, and extremely hardy vines. Cabernet Sauvignon can grow in a variety of climates and tends to be one of the last major grape variety buds to ripen, which is typically about two weeks after its father, Cabernet Franc. What I'd really like, Dad, is to bar the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? After some time, Cabernet Sauvignon variety began to be the vine of choice of winemakers. They were looking for more durable plants that were less temperamental and easier to grow. It became the most powerful grape in the Bordeaux region. So, you know, get it. What's not to like? The grape had fantastic tannic structure, allowing the winemakers to produce a wine that would age and evolve for years in bottle. The wine, as we all know, loves oak and began taking on new flavors. It's a full-bodied wine with the right amount of acid and was perfect for those big, bold meals. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. Once Cabernet Sauvignon began to gain a name for itself, it made its way over to the New World and was planted in many areas. But in 1976, in the now historical Judgment of Paris, it was a little-known wine from Stag's Leap in the Napa Valley that beat out the top Bordeaux Chateaus and in a blind taste and turned Cabernet Sauvignon into a rock star that left its father behind and he has never looked back since. So while Cabernet Franc was being the workhorse, Cabernet Sauvignon was taking the spotlight. Just like the song, the son grows apart from the father and goes on his own path. But in the end, the father returns with a better understanding of what it takes to be a success in life. 
And as the vintages pass by, people are learning that Cabernet Franc has so much to offer that they are going to want to spend more time with it. In the vineyard, Cabernet Franc offers the vineyard manager some relief from weather concerns as compared to its offspring. There are significant differences between the two vines. Clusters are tighter than Cabernet Sauvignon due to the greater berry set. Cabernet Franc berries are thinner skinned, typically ripening earlier, and have lower overall acidity than Cabernet Sauvignon. It is more cold tolerant and tends to survive colder winters. However, it is a bit more susceptible to being damaged by spring frost. Although a lot is dependent on farming practices, Cabernet Franc is usually fruitier and has more of a tendency to be less tannic. But don't let this fool you. Cab Francs are capable of aging just as much as their offspring. And just like their offspring, as they age, they gain more complex notes as it spends more times in bottle. And very importantly, as the climate changes, Cabernet Franc with its inherent tannic structure, good acidity, and low alcohol is the perfect grape to continue to excel as it will not experience any distortion of varietal character. This cannot be said of its offspring, Cabernet Sauvignon. So, the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you coming home, Cab Franc? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, yeah. We're going to have a great time then. And now, a word from our sponsor. Did you know that Dracina Wines has a wine club? We named it the Chalk Club. Draco is on our label, but Vegas was getting a bit jealous, so we decided he deserved to be our wine club spokesdog. In Las Vegas, betting chalk means that you are betting on all of the favorites, and we're gambling that once you taste our wines, we will become one of your favorite wineries. The club is simple, yet a bit different than most. We don't ask for a lot of commitment like others do. Choose between three tiers. The Sweet 16, where you'll receive three bottles twice a year and get 25% off all orders. Sign up for the Elite 8 and get 30% off all orders and receive four bottles twice a year. Or make it to the final four and receive six bottles twice a year, as well as receiving 35% off all purchases. All tiers receive discounted shipping, are customizable, and are eligible for unlimited referral bonuses. Add $15 to your bank for each person you refer. Head to www.dracinawines.com or the link in the show notes to find out all the Chalk Club has to offer and to sign up. We've stocked the odds so that you can get our award-winning wines without breaking the bank. As Michael said, I'm, I'm Stephen Kempner, a proprietor and winemaker of the Lineage Wine Collection. I call Livermore Valley home. My family is the oldest winemaking family in the country. I'm the sixth generation of uh, the Mirosu family. We started making wine in California in San Jose in 1854. So just a little bit of context. Think back to Abraham Lincoln, and six years before Abraham Lincoln, we were making wine in San Jose. So my family has been doing this for a long time. My son, Aiden, is part of our winemaking team. He's the seventh generation of the family. So we're, we, um, we're, the family's in, in, good, in good hands as far as the future is concerned. We're very excited to be part of this amazing uh, culture and business that is wonderful. I'm gonna talk to you for a few minutes about my favorite grape, Cabernet Franc, and why I believe the Livermore Valley can be its ultimate American homeland. The concept of home and wine reverberates in a million different ways practically every single one of which is emotional. 
nature. The intersection of great wine and the emotional response to it is where true beauty and kinship and lifeblood reside. It's thought the Cap Franc originated in southwest France or just over the Pyrenees in Spain. It is known that Cardinal Richelieu, one of the architects of modern France, was enamored of the variety and brought it with him to the Abbey of Bourgogne in the Mid-Loire Valley in the 1630s. Breton, who was the abbot there, became synonymous with the grape and the variety is still called after him on occasion. One of Cab Franc's true homes remains the Loire Valley, where 100% versions of that grape abound. A century later, Bordeaux, especially the right bank, becomes another spiritual home to Cab Franc. Here, the grape plays a meaningful but supportive role in the greatest blends of the world. From France, the grape spreads all over Europe, Italy, Bulgaria, Croatia, Hungary, and in just a few places. It spreads on the waves of immigration to the New World also. South Africa, although it's not really the New World, they've been making wine since the 1500s. Chile, Argentina, New York, Virginia, Michigan, Colorado, and California. There are records of Cab Franc finding home in California more than a century ago, but it wasn't documented in the annual California Great Gross Report until 1977, which makes it relatively recent as far as being a, a variety and importance in California. Cab Franc was planted in the Livermore Valley more than 100 years ago, but was relegated, as it was in most California vineyards, to the status of a blending grape, providing a little verve to bigger Cabernet Sauvignon blends. It wasn't allowed to stand on its own, majestic and beautiful and sexy, until now. The Livermore Valley is one of the oldest and best growing areas in California. It is also one of the rare east-west oriented valleys in the state, and its western end is only about 25 miles from San Francisco Bay. Dry but important viticultural characteristics to note the excellence of RAVA. Huge diurnal temperature ranges, the difference between daytime highs and nighttime lows, which help to maintain acidity in, in our grapes, as well as supplying plenty of sunlight for photosynthesis and sugar, and ultimately alcohol production. A plethora of different soil types and microclimates, 150 years of wine growing experience passed down from one generation of winemakers to another. Unlike the Napa Valley, our valley floor is about 600 feet above sea level. The encircling hills funnel San Francisco Bay air through our vineyards practically every afternoon. The prevalence of wind and the windmills in the eastern foothills of Livermore and its increasingly important effects due to climate change obtained to the glorious future of Cabernet Franc in the Livermore Valley. Our experience with climate change is different than Paso Robles' and Napa's. Increasing airflow west to east of Livermore Valley is producing a need for longer growing seasons. Vines don't like a lot of wind, so they shut down earlier in the day than they had in the past. We still require, though, an aggregate number of ripening hours to get fruit physiologically ripe. So the need for more growing days, consequently, extends our growing season into mid-November. And it makes early ripening varieties, as Lori mentioned, uh, two weeks, 10 days, two weeks earlier than Cabernet Franc or Cabernet Sauvignon, really necessary to get fruit ripe and to be able to produce wines of world-class quality. And we believe, I believe, and there are a growing number of winemakers in Livermore Valley who believe that Cabernet Franc is going to end up being that world-class alternative to Cabernet Sauvignon. Much more important than the viticultural reasons for adopting Cabernet Franc as the grape of world-class quality choice in Livermore is the beautiful and rare confluence 
of nature's need married to the emotional needs of a growing community of winemakers here in our valley. Speaking just for myself and my winemaking team, though I know that my feelings are felt to one degree or another by many others in Livermore, including those in this room, great winemaking requires a deft touch, good fruit, good winery sanitation practices, all those practical winemaking things. But what it really requires is a deeply felt connection between what one conceives as ultimate beauty in wine and the grape that can turn that burning emotional need into finest deed. In my mind and in my heart and in my loins, no grape does that better than Cabernet Franc. Important regional progress is always initiated by just a few true believers, and it's measured only haltingly. This small group believes and proselytizes, often toils away in the dark and without fanfare, until, if they are persistent enough and loving, the larger world comes to discover and embrace their heartfelt message. The Cabernet Franc producers of the Livermore Valley are certainly just beginning this first phase of this process. We know why we love the grape. It's intensely flavored and aroma. It's ability to pair with food from all over the world. It's natural affinity to the growing conditions of the Livermore Valley. We know too, I think deeply, its desire to be made on a structural continuum that emphasizes acidity, that eschews obvious unbalanced bigness for something much rarer, a vinous representation of perfect balance and beauty. As I've written in my first book, there is no transactional relationship between Cabernet Franc and a lover of it, as there is with Cabernet Sauvignon. Great Cabernet Sauvignon is more often about the presentation of the bottle as if it were a trophy. My $500 bottle gives me bragging rights, and that's more important than it being a finely crafted wine at the end. The relationship between the drinker of Great Cabernet Franc and the wine itself is that of a sensual dance, a love affair, great sex. Great Cab Franc doesn't make demands like other wines do, but it does require a sympathetic palate and a romantic spirit. In the world of wine, grapes like Pinot Noir are about the intellect. Cabernet Franc is ultimately about orgasm. <laughs> so, who cares about Cab Franc? and its next great spiritual home, the Livermore Valley. I certainly do. My assistant winemakers, Beth Refsnyder and Aiden Mirasu certainly do. We're not just making wine to quench a thirst or to go with the next meal. We are on a mission to create emotional connections between our wines and those who choose to drink them. We are dedicated, much like the winemaker who first grew Cabernet Franc in the Loire Valley more than 400 years ago, to work to make a wine that celebrates the finest that we are able to achieve as winemakers, that bridges the gap between the mind and the body, and that inspires and inflames the wine lover's heart. We are fortunate enough to be working at the right time, in the right place, with the right grape. Those who know or will come to the Livermore Valley already get its rare perfection of sight. We know that this grape is as perfectly suited to our vineyards as it is anywhere in the world, and the winemakers who care about the mission the way we do will help us to create not only ecstatic examples of great wine, but also a new spiritual center for Cabernet Franc in the new world. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Pam Starr, and um, I'm nearing young four decades in this business, and Cabernet Franc has been in my life since the very beginning. Um, Michael left out a couple of tidbits. I'm actually one of the OGs. 
original girls in our business. Um, and uh, so my journey started when I graduated from Davis and I was gonna go to dental school. And I, I took an internship in a winery and uh, I didn't look back. It was a blast. I have to say I'm, never, I'm not unhappy that I didn't take the dental admissions test. Um, but it's been a really great four decades and I'm really lucky to have been part of the winemaking industry in the 80s because we did a ton of research and we did a lot of sharing. And so what Lori and Stephen brought to you was history that was shared with us in the 80s because everybody was trying to figure out what to do next. Even the Bordeaux people who were pretty close, the French are very reserved, um, they were willing to share. So the Germans, the French, the Americans, the people in Cornell University to the east, everybody was doing research on rootstocks and clonal material. And Cabernet Franc really was probably low on the list of the clonal research, but we actually ended up having a lot of documentation from the 80s about Cap Franc clones. Um, so in my, in my journey, Cabernet Franc has been a grape variety that has been extremely difficult to plant in the right place. Um, it didn't garner love by the American people because it had too much pyrazine in it. So that's the cause of your bell peppers and your asparagus. And, and so it, because it didn't have a lot of attention paid to it, it sort of went by the wayside. But in the 80s, we found that we were planting it all wrong and we were putting it in the wrong soil, the wrong climate, and voila, you find a vineyard that is planted just by chance in the right environment, you will be rewarded with the most beautiful non-fruitedness a grape variety can provide. So I worked for other people along the way, did a lot of research in the 80s, and then ended up being the winemaker at Spotswood, which is a Cabernet house up in St. Helena. So Crocker Vineyard is to the south, east side of the town of St. Helena. Have you guys been to all Napa Valley? Everybody knows where we are. We're a little, yeah. We're, it's 39 mile long valley and we're sort of like middle upper center. It's where the two mountain ranges come together and it's the most narrow part of the valley which makes it really a unique space for growing not just Cabernet Sauvignon but for Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, and there's even a little bit of Petite Sirah and Sirah in the area too. So we're a very small Appalachian, St. Helena is. Um, I met Charlie's Vineyard, which is an 1870 vineyard estate. It was called James Dowdell and Sons, and they grew beer, uh, so hops. Uh, they made a little booze that had some distillation going on. They had all the fruits and nuts and the grapes, and probably added a couple cows in there, and they were fully sustainable. <laughs> As a, as a place, they made wine. Uh, there was a gravity flow winery on the property, so I had I was leaving Mary Norek of Spotswood, and I was stepping into a project that required the knowledge of history, research, uh, and how to resurrect a vineyard with organic farming, because when I met the Crocker Vineyard, uh, AKA James Dowdell, pre-prohibition, um, it was not organically farmed, it was conventionally farmed, it was a commodity crop. But it, it was some of the best dirt I'd ever seen, and the reason why I started Crawford Store Winery is because I met Cap Franc vines for the first time that looked like trolls that produced fruit that was amazing. Okay, no, no vegetables and carrots and none of that. It was all about flowers and blueberries and raspberries 
and all the exotic fruit spices you could imagine. Uh, so I, I met Charlie in uh, 1996, and uh, I went to the 25th floor of One Post Street, wearing my comfortable one, making clothes, jeans, white shirt, vest, you know, not this. <laughs> and uh, I should have worn this. Uh, and I got on the elevator on the 25th floor, and I thought, okay, this person knows business. I know wine. I know how to design a wine. Uh, and uh, I thought our conversation would be three seconds, and it was about three hours. And uh, we shook hands, and Cochrane Store was born that day. So I wrote a business plan. First time I did that. Here's a business plan. He's like, no, 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 I have no time for this. Okay, got you. Um, and uh, um, I'm very fortunate because he trusted me 100% of what I was doing. And I wrote a business plan, and I started to resurrect the vineyard. Meanwhile, you know. I started a consulting business, and that actually led me to help other people in the valley discover that their Cabernet Franc was planted in the wrong place. And it was those who were willing to financially invest in changing that vineyard, because that's a very expensive uh, thing to do, um, were well paid off. The Cabernet Francs today are thriving. And um, so unlike most wineries in Napa Valley, and because uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is king, it, it's a fantastic great variety. There's no argument there. But Cabernet Franc is sitting at the same table. And uh, I have such a passion for very difficult grape varieties. Um, Cabernet Franc is more difficult to grow than Pinot Noir. It's more persnickety. It wants to be Japanese beanstalk. You have to actually talk to it. And you have to give it the inputs that it needs. Um, there has to be some manipulation in the early days and you fight with the plant for, you're like, no, 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 you're not supposed to be this big, you're supposed to be smaller. And so, uh, so there's a lot of struggle. So a couple years in, the first thing I did was not launch Cabernet Sauvignon, and Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon to the universe. I introduced Crawford Star Winery with 100 cases of Cabernet Franc. And uh, immediately, the intrigue was strong. And I was very fortunate when I did this, the time was fantastic. I did have a good reputation for making wine, Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Sauvignon. I also made a Cabernet Franc for Spotswood at the time, and that gave people a little bit of interest and sort of like, who's this crazy Napa person launching Cabernet Franc? I was like one of a handful of people who did this. And, um, and I launched it onto the world, and the chefs were immediately intrigued and sent their sommeliers out to get me. And I was, I was so happy, because I was busy running my consulting business um, that I had no time to sell the wine. And uh, so uh, the sommeliers launched what proper star of the world. Um, shortly thereafter, um, I made really good friends with Karen McNeil, who is the author of the Wine Bible. Anybody? Yes? All of Karen McNeil? The Wine Bible's fabulous. If you guys really want to go down a rabbit hole with information and factoids, she's fantastic. And she's a really good teacher. But one thing she gave to the world of, uh, of winos is she gave a new vocabulary. And I want to really, I want to get this in the right order, but she, she brought her own vocabulary to wine people. And I think it's very important that as wine-loving people that you be able to use words appropriate to your smell and your taste. So Karen put together a panel and uh, she, she presented uh, six winemakers and she said, okay, these winemakers are here to present to you the six elements of the greatness of wine. The first element is distinctiveness. The second element is precision. The third element is balance. 
Fourth is connectedness. Connectedness. Isn't that a great word? I love that word. And the fifth word is complexity. But I am, am like completely fascinated with the sixth word. I was the sixth element, and I presented non-fruitedness. And what a better way to do that than with Cabernet Franc. And Cabernet Franc has the ability to become a thicker skin. It can be tougher. Loire is a little cold. I was just telling Stephen before we came in here that I did a presentation one time on the Goldilocks of Cabernet Franc. And I said that the Loire is too cold, Bordeaux is too blended, and Napa is just right. Because we're, we are, um, we have no holds barred in Napa. We can do whatever we want to. We can plant it wherever we want to. We don't have the rules of the road of European um, uh, viticulture. We, we're mavericks. So Cabernet Franc can be a very nice, thick grape. And when you bite into a Cabernet Franc and it's ready to pick, my opinion, and really winemakers are all different. Um, but when you bite into the grape, it's basically like biting into a blueberry where the center is kind of jelly, and you start chewing on the skin, and that is where the non-fruitedness comes. And unlike, I mean, don't get me wrong, fruity wines are beautiful. They're the gateway to deliciousness, right? But there's simplicity in fruitiness. We need more. So the layers come and unfold with that non-fruitedness. Characters like uh, pink flowers, purple irises, uh, cardamom, my number one spice distinctiveness for Cabernet Franc. If I can find just a little tad of cardamom in the Cabernet Franc that I'm tasting, I'm like, I'm in. Uh, tobacco, unsmoked tobacco, like a freshly rolled cigar. Um, there's meat, blood, leather, and minerals. But the spices are really the most important ones. And so in the early days, when I, here I am, I'm like, I launch 100 cases of Cabernet Franc into the universe, I'm like, hey, here I am, Pam Star, Cardinal Star Boy. Oh, hi, Michael, Pam Star, never heard of you, Pam, never, oh, oh, okay. Well, so let's just try this all over again. So how do you describe Cabernet Franc? How do you give them a vocabulary to make it comfortable enough for them to go, I'm totally full in? So I gave them vocabulary. I said, well, just pretend it's like a black raspberry meets a blueberry. It's getting smashed up. Add some cardamom to that. Put some tobacco in the finish. And uh, it goes great with food. <laughs> and, and that's how it started. <laughs> so um, that is, that is my, still my journey. We launched with 100 cases of Cap Prompt 25 years ago. Uh, we are now about a 550 case production of our estate Cabernet Prompt which is 100% front, front, front. I've got three clones in it. And then tonight you're having uh, my, what I call the AVA, the American Viticultural Area Cabernet Franc. It happens to be 100% from the estate, so it's organically grilled and we're fish friendly certified and green winery, all the things that the vintners tell us we have to be, but I actually believe in all that stuff. Uh, and uh, so tonight you're having a 70% Cabernet Franc. Blend. Uh, it is led with two clones. There's one that's called the Goddess Clone. So the Goddess Clone is a is a suitcase selection. Um, it came uh, from Bordeaux and it landed in a vineyard in Napa. And there was a reason why they selected it in Bordeaux. It's because it ripens very early. Uh, so it had to do some manipulation in the vineyard with that. And then the other uh, selection that's in here is uh, two fourteen. And we have a really good friend in the front world, uh, John Speckney, uh, who's got uh, Landon Reed, and he makes a cup front called 214. 
And, uh, and then the other components of wine you're having are some estate Cabernet, a little bit of Melbeck, and Petit Verdot. And those three classic Bordeaux varieties actually are underneath the Cap Franc. They lift it up like a pedestal, and all the Cap Franc sits on top. So um, my journey, I'm still a student of Cap Franc. Um, I just did a tasting recently uh, with some producers that are coming out. It's growing in fascination, but not in volume. There's only a smatterings of Cabernet Franc, so producers who are coming out with their $325 bottle of wines are 150 cases. Um, it, you know, it took me 25 years to grow from 100 cases to 4,000, oh, and that's seven wines, and it's all from our property. So it's exciting to me to see that people, I did a tasting of uh, six wines, and the least expensive wine was $100, and uh, the production on that one was about 500 cases, similar to Crocker and Star. And the other three, the other four or five, were about 150 cases, and they went up to 325. So it's exciting in some ways, and there are people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is, and I tasted these wines, and they're phenomenal. Um, they're going to need a little bit of time, but I think your journey of, of Cap Franc can start at any level, $58 to the moon. Um, I hope. You guys have a chance to come and see us at Conference Star. Anyway, thanks, you guys, very much. So these three speeches. So first of all, thank you for including me as one of them. I um, had a little fun with mine. I thought I would be a little playful. So now that we have dinner, which uh, everybody had rave reviews over the food. Um, so where do you see this going in the future? So I really like the, uh, if you, I'm looking down the road. So this was the culmination of a, this, of a, this year's event was the culmination of, of a thought four years ago. Mm -hmm. And four years ago, uh, our friends that were at the event, we went to Yosemite and we all took good bottles of Cab Franc because it was near December 4th, which you and your husband have um, worked out to be International Cab Franc Day. So it was really, we kind of were just kind of on the outskirts of this whole idea of Cab Franc Day. And that was a just, that's where it started. And this was the vision. Unfortunately, the first year, I didn't want to get involved with the public because the public would have just added more confusion to the first year. The second year, we had COVID. So we couldn't do anything with COVID. We couldn't have the public there. So this is the first year we really had the opportunity to bring the public in and have um, an audience to experience all three of these events. And um, we actually had people come to the wine tasting and we had a, a little section cordoned off for uh, the public to view. And we probably had 15, 16 people come through and just kind of watch what competition, uh, wine tasting competition. competition really looks like. So, and again, it's, and if, unless you're actually doing the judging and involved having the tasting of the wine, it's kind of like watching paint dry. It's, <laughs> it's not the most exciting thing in the world, watching people sip, swirl, and spit out into a spit uh, cup. So it's not exactly the most exciting thing, but they were able to overhear some of the discussion. And I'm sure there were terms and, and nomenclature they were not used to, but that's good. That's part of education. Mm -hmm. So that was, so I will continue the wine competition 
in the kind of the format. The second part I really liked also, which was, and I think the feedback from yourself and many others, was bringing in past winners so they're all tasting very good wines. Um, and they're tasting good wines with some very good uh, appetizers or food pairings. It gives, it gives the wine a whole uh, a vitality tasting it with certain foods. So I thought that part was good and that will continue to be part of it. I'm not sure about the winemaker's dinner. I'm thinking like a month later or six weeks later, we hold a winemaker's dinner with the two best of shows. So then people can taste something that they can go out and buy. Some of these ones, you know, from the eight previous winners, those vintages have come and gone. Right. And, and so this would be, uh, and hopefully they've all sold out. So this way, if they, if we get somebody that comes in, maybe we could have the dinner right, right away, uh, you know, six weeks after, and then you're not waiting a year to have the dinner with those folks you would have. And you know that those wines, which were very good and want an award-winning, they could go out and buy those wines at the same time. So that would help the wineries in that regard. That, so that's one thought on that third part of this. The other is uh, possibly doing it and bringing everybody back using the town square that we have. Oh, you're going having, big. <laughs> and going with, and then doing it over a weekend as opposed to during the week. And on the on the weekend, take a Saturday and literally have 60, 70, 80 booths out there tasting wines. However, that tasting. So well, those we are, will those have are, to wait and see. You have now a year to uh, a year to start preparing. So but there was some, uni- I, you know, I think that this whole thing is somewhat unique with the two judges. I think it's unique with bringing in winemakers from various regions, just tasting the same varietal. Mm-hmm. And it's also very unique having dinner with the same varietal from three different winemakers. So I I like aspects of this and I hope to continue that in however the form may take place with that, that kind of the point of the arrow is going to continue to feature Cab Franc from different areas and showcase those. Well, I am very appreciative because whenever somebody talks about Cap Franc, I get all happy. So it is, you know, has been my mission since day one to prove that Cap Franc is more than a blending grape. And I am appreciative that you are, that you have stepped up to help in this mission. So thank you very much. And for anybody who is interested, Michael Kelly's website, is CaliforniaWinesAndWineries.com. So be sure to go check it out. He's written a couple of articles already. I don't know how he gets these out so quickly about the competition. So you can read them and you can go through and see other wines that he writes about and the food pairings that he goes about doing it. So thank you, Michael. And I appreciate everything you've done. Blancha. Well, uh, before I say Solancha to you, just because you win all these awards, I want your price. I want your wines not to go too high in price. We are. We have been told by many of people that we, including Steve, that we need to <laughs> increase our prices. But we're kind of we like where we are. Our thing is, is once it's on your palate, people enjoy it, and then they come back for more. Worth it, whether it's at what? What's the price today on the wine? Our classic is $34 and our reserve is 45. And the classic is what won. Yes. So, so I will just tell you that 
I, I really do believe you could go for more, but uh, I'm well, appreciative. We of appreciate that. We appreciate yeah. that. But we, you know, we want the people to truly enjoy our wines and not necessarily have to, you know, break the bank to enjoy them. So congratulations. And now you. I'm in say Solancha. Solancha. Thank you. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. Now.